Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the peoples. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, if you were here during our time in Advent, you know that we have spent the last four weeks looking at a collection of psalms, both for the intended purpose of to familiarize ourselves with the book of Psalms, but also to expand our vision for what Christmas is. Uh, So often we think of Christmas as a time in which God is simply bringing Jesus Christ to the earth to pay a penalty for sins, and that penalty for sins is due to us individually, and so Christ's gift or the gift of Christ from the Father to the world is not one that has cosmic significance or worldwide significance, but only so in so much as affects us individually. That is, Christ may be bringing joy to the world, but only to those who receive his salvation. But what I think the Psalms do for us, and looking at, looking at areas of Scripture in a greater view with more detail, bringing out the aspects of the Psalms and the prophets of old, what they do is they deliver us from this myopia in which we just see Christ as a gift to me or Christ as a gift to you. Instead, we must see Christ as presented in this psalm and indeed all of our psalms that we looked at during the time of Advent as the central way that God makes all of his promises true for the world. It is not enough to recognize Christ as a personal savior. We must recognize Christ as the way by which God is answering the great problem of evil which has infiltrated the entire earth. So I want to look very briefly at this psalm in three passages or three portions, looking first at this command that's given for Israel to sing because the Lord is great. That command then overflows, if you will, or or waterfalls down into a command to the nations or the peoples to praise God because he reigns, which 
itself overflows into a command to all of creation to worship God because he comes not simply to judge, although the word is judge in our translation, but more closely we read to deliver. He comes to set things right. He comes, as we'll see at the end, to deliver that through Christ's coming, he undoes the great futility that was unleashed in Adam's sin. And so Jesus Christ is the central uh, aspect or vehicle by which God's faithfulness is brought to the earth. And so he is joy to the world. As we sang just a few minutes ago, the reason why we are telling the rocks, floods, hills, plains to rejoice is because they themselves are affected by Jesus Christ and his coming. Our Savior is not merely a Savior of souls. He's a Savior of his creation. Now, in saying that, that's a high, that's a high bar to, uh, or a, that's a high assertion to, to back up and to meet. But I think if we look closely at this psalm, we'll see exactly that through the language that's being used. Israel is called to sing a new song for an express purpose that the Lord would be given the glory that he's due and that God would rightly be praised in the nation of Israel. And so the psalm begins with a command to sing, and then it informs the command. First, the command is to sing to the Lord a new song, and then the the reason why is given. Why should we sing? Because he brings salvation for his people through great and marvelous works. And given to the people of Israel... The call to command or the command to sing a new song brings to mind old works that God has done. Israel is a nation that was founded by the great work of God in ripping them out of Egypt, destroying the nation of Egypt, punishing wicked Pharaoh, and delivering them. They who were in bondage to sin, slavery, and political bondage especially were ripped out of Egypt, taken through the wilderness, provided for, and then brought into a good land. And so this call to sing a new song based on new salvation that God is bringing to his people calls the people of Israel to begin to wonder what could God possibly do that's better than the Exodus? How could we praise God with a new song because of a future salvation when we have such a great foundation to draw from? What this does is this makes our imagination as those who are God's people. It makes us look forward into the future to see whatever God is going to be doing, whatever the reason is for this new song, it has to be much greater than 10 successive plagues and destroying a world power and ripping out and creating a people who were no people and giving them a land where they had no place to live. Nevertheless, they're told to praise the Lord with a new song based on a reminder of what he's done unto an anticipation of what comes next. In verse 2, sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among the nations. Instantly we see the theme of this psalm, that the praise of God becomes speech to the nations. Though Israel is singing to the Lord, their praise to God should necessarily result in speech 
to the nations. So often when we think of God's praise, we think of something that we're doing to the Lord. And even tonight as we sang, we were singing songs to the Lord. But interestingly, if you look at the structure and words of many of the songs we sung, they were words sung from me to you and you to me. They were, they were words sung in a church calling each other to come adore the Lord, to put forth the glory of the Lord. Our, our worship and our praise to God is not merely a vertical aspect. It has horizontal aspects. And because of that, we see that they are inextricably linked. The reason why missions need to exist is because praise to God doesn't yet exist in all places. That's what this psalm is calling the people of Israel to do. It's not telling them to simply go to temple and to praise God privately, individually. No, it's that that praise would crescendo into or waterfall into, if you will, praise and speech to the nations. Israel sings because their God is the true God, and none of the nations have a true God. That's why the nations need to hear the great and glorious deeds of the Lord. Verse 4, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Interestingly enough, in the Hebrew writings, that word gods doesn't simply mean Zeus or Thor. It actually means powers. It means those things in which people put their trust, those things which seem powerful to mankind. God is to be feared above all powers. He is to be feared above all things which capture our attention or capture our love, which capture our awe. God is to be, to, to put it in, in modern terms, just to connect it for us, it, God is to be praised far beyond Superman. God is to be praised far beyond my political hero. God is to be praised, for me, it might be a person like Steve Jobs or Elon Musk. God is to be praised greater than the techno, technological prowess of the day. That is what this psalmist is saying. The gods of the peoples, the things in which the nations trust, they're empty. They have nothing to actually trust in. Verse 5, for all the gods of the people are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Then after Israel has told the nations of God's praise, then the nations are commanded to join into that praise. In verse 7, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Now, this word families of the peoples also can encompass this idea of generations and nations. It's not the peoples of Israel, it's all the peoples of the earth. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, verse 8. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Do you see how the repetition in the psalm is building and building and building? First, God is to be praised in Israel, and that should explode into speech, missions work in the nations, and then that After they hear of the Lord's works, that then explodes into further praise. Ascribe, ascribe. Give him glory. Bring an offering. Come into his courts. This idea that the nations are even invited to come into the courts of God means there is a great salvation far beyond the exodus which has come to the nations. The exodus brought freedom to Israel, bringing them out of Egypt and created a special relationship with covenant to God. And by that relationship, they were allowed to come into his assembly. And if they kept themselves according to his law, they were permitted to worship before him. But the call to tell the nations to come into his courts means that God is 
purifying the nations. The nations cannot come into the courts unless God does something to make them a part of his new people. Why should the nations praise God and tremble before him? Because he is coming to establish justice between the nations. Verse 10, again, this is a command to Israel to do this. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. The nations will no longer, because of this verse, because of this promise that Yahweh reigns now, they will no longer sit under the unwavering uh, relationship to either their political or religious systems. Nations today which are outside of God's covenant, which are outside of God's relationship, they constantly sit in fear of other nations, of their own political leaders becoming tyrants or, or ruining the country through economic policies, or they simply fear the various sorts of issues which overwhelm governments, be it national, state, or local. For example, yesterday I was reading a story. Uh, many of you know Tom Kelby is a, a person in our church. And so now whenever I hear the word Philippines, because of Tom's work in the Philippines, my ears perk up immediately. And just to, just to paint a picture of what it looks like for the nations to fear where they live, the Philippines just had an event in the last two days in which a great mudslide took place and 160 people were killed in the span of a few hours. The reason why that happened is because the world is still under the rattlings of this problem called sin. This is not a perfect world and yet because of the salvation which, this, which God is bringing to the people, they're told to worship Yahweh, trust in him. Why? Because the world is established. This has in mind some great salvation that God is going to bring, not just to their nation politically or to them individually as families. He's going to fix the earth. And I, I don't think that's a stretch of what this psalmist is implying. He's saying the creation itself will be established because this king, whoever this person is, the Lord himself is going to judge the peoples with equity. Because God reigns, therefore, the entire earth and heavens, indeed all of creation, are set free to begin to worship him. Finally, building upon the victory of God in Israel and in the nations, first it begins in Israel and overflows to prophetic speech and to praise among the nations and calling them to recognize the Lord as God, then creation itself begins to join in with the song. Verse 11, let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar and all that fills it. This is a very interesting picture to me because when we think of the sea in the scriptures, it usually implies either the nations who are rebelling against Israel or the nations who are just simply at war with each other and in rebellion against God. But interestingly enough, what God is doing is here, he's taking this image of the seas which are constantly in upheaval and constantly in, in uproar, and he's taking that and making it now his praise. He is overruling the natural order which would usually be un, in frustration. He's brought a salvation to it, and then it's, it is released from bondage to the praise of God. 
Let the field exalt in everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. I don't know about you. I've never heard trees sing. This sounds like a great promise. And I don't think the psalmist is intending for us to hear this promise and say, that can never happen. This promise is too great. No, the psalmist is inviting us to consider the sort of quality and excellence of the salvation which God brings. The salvation which God brings does not merely redeem Israel or set free some nations. No, it crescendos into the whole earth will be set aright. Finally and fully, everything will be at peace. How do we understand this to have anything to do with Christmas? You may have been sitting here under this uh, in the last few minutes and, and thought to yourself, I thought I was coming to a Christmas Eve service, and here we've been talking about Psalm 96. And I would encourage you, it has everything to do with Christ's coming. Hearing this call to rejoice and to celebrate and then to take that rejoicing and immediately turn it into outreach to the nations around us, we then can reread or rehear the story of Christ and the details which surrounded his coming and see it as the great answer. How did God save the world? He sent his son as a baby. That is how he began to save the world. And looking closely at the theme of this psalm, that joy should turn into evangelistic outreach and evangelistic praise, which draws in the nations, we then can see Christ coming in a very new and refreshing way. In my mind, this actually restores some of the magic of Christmas. Have you ever felt this way growing up? I know I feel this way every few years, that when Christmas comes along, it's just not like it used to be when I was a child. And I think the reason why is because I've become a little bit dull in spirit, right? I think G.K. Chesterton is, is the one who's quoted as saying that, you know, all of the repetitive things in our life, we get bored with it, but that is because we have grown old and God remains forever young. And the idea that he's trying to convey isn't that God has an age, but rather that God, because of the purity of who he is, he constantly is celebrating the work that he's doing in saving his people. We get bored with Christmas. God never gets bored in this sense. So I want to look closely at how this creation is revealed, uh, sorry, relieved from its oppression through specifically the coming of Christ. Creation itself breaks out into song for the Lord is coming to deliver, not simply judge. He's coming to deliver. That's the same word in the Hebrew, but very different in the English. He's not simply coming to judge all of the living and the dead at the end of time. He's coming to deliver the earth. Verse 13, before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to deliver the earth. He will deliver the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. Now, I, I can sense that some of you think I'm playing fast and loose, but I, I just encourage you to trust me. It is the same word. It's sometimes quoted judge. Or it's also sometimes quoted deliver. It's the exact same, um, exact same word underneath in the Hebrew. The point is that creation itself breaks out into song because the deliverance of the Lord has come and that all is seen in Christ's birth. 
Christ's birth is seen in the light of these commands to rejoice or to celebrate again and to then go to the nations and to tell them of the salvation which God has brought day to day. At the announcement of Christ's birth, uh, rather not birth but, but conception, John the Baptist leaps for joy in his mother Elizabeth's womb. The very first response to the announcement that there is a child in Mary's womb is joy. Luke is very careful to record these details for us, and I think there's no mistaking what God's intention is in Luke. Mary's song of praise, which she then sings, begins with the phrase, her spirit is rejoicing in God her Savior. It does, she, does, she could have said, my spirit is confident in, in my Savior, or my spirit is delighted. No, she uses the word rejoice. She is praising God because of what God has done in giving her this child. The angels declare to the shepherds that the good news of Christ's birth will be great joy for Israel. No, it says for all the peoples. It's very interesting for angels associated with Yahweh and Yahweh's covenant with his people Israel to tell Israel, uh, Israel's shepherds that this will become a gospel, good news, not for just Israel, but for all the peoples. And immediately we begin to see this theme tie in here with Christ's birth. After seeing the child, the shepherds then go forth glorifying and praising God. They turn their experience with Christ at his birth into worship, into celebration, and they go forth from that event of meeting Christ and it turns into speech and praise. Now, Luke doesn't give us detail here, but I just want to, you, to encourage you, use your holy imagination for a second. If you were just met with a group of angels, and then you saw a child exactly where they told you he would be, and that child was born in a very strange setting in a barn, and you were filled with the knowledge that God had intervened in history, I don't think you would meet someone on the road that night and not tell them what has just happened. I would have to guess that the shepherds as they went forth didn't just praise, they also proclaimed. They turned their joy into speech. When Simeon sees the Christ, he praises God for salvation. He does offer up a thanksgiving to God directly, but then it immediately becomes a prophetic oracle. He says that Jesus will be a light of revelation to the Gentiles. It's not enough that Simeon sees Christ coming to save Israel. He says, by the Spirit of God, this child is given for all peoples. Likewise, immediately upon seeing the Christ, Anna began to give thanks to God and then look closely. It's, it's, Im, it's unmistakable at this point. She gives thanks to God and then she began to speak of him to all who were, ra- were ra- waiting for the redemption of Israel. It's, it's amazing how closely knit these two concepts are in Luke's recording of Christmas. And I really believe that this answers a great need in our day, individually as a church, even indeed as a culture. It, it relieves a great pressure that we have. Um, it, many times in life, we are encountering stories that are 
simply catastrophic. And, and if we focus upon them, we cannot give God any of the praise. In celebrating Christ's birth from day to day and year to year, we must lift our eyes from the sins and issues of life to a greater view, uh, as Charles Spurgeon said, by the Spirit of God to look forward to that golden horizon and to consider whether or not God will continue to bring his redemption to the earth. We have to lift our eyes up and transcend, not ignore, but from time to time, transcend the issues which plague us personally and corporately, culturally. If our eyes are turned merely to the misery of the earth, we cannot praise God rightly. It is impossible to, to be absorbed with angst and fear and, and even, even on a good human level, compassion for those who are suffering. If we are consumed by that, we cannot begin to praise God rightly. When we focus even on our own sins and problems, we often rob God of the praise that he deserves. You see, God set his love upon me when Christ came to the earth, and I had nothing to do with that. And so if he did send Christ even when I was still a sinner and Christ died while I was still a sinner, how much more will God bring me to maturity now that by faith I've begun to take baby steps toward Christ today? You see, I cannot change the fact of the gospel, nor can I change the application of the gospel. I merely can respond in faith and begin to walk in accordance with the truth, which is God has brought a great salvation to the earth. We are commanded in this psalm to lift our eyes to see the great heights of God's salvation, which is coming upon all the earth. I just want to encourage you that this is a condition, it's a spiritual condition for Christians that we can get into in which we, we become trapped in a pit, so to speak, of despair. Uh, I was speaking with somebody this last week and they were, they were describing some of the worldwide problems which plague a certain nation of human trafficking and economic upheaval and political disaster and, and drought and famine. Literally, this nation sounded like it was living under the curse. And, and everything that could go wrong was going wrong. And on, a, on one level, we must be compassionate with those people. At another level, if we try to take on that burden ourselves, we will never praise God adequately. This, this can become a deep problem for us as Christians. We can make hobby horse concerns out of one issue or another, whether it's in our culture or a nation of the earth or in some person we know. Nevertheless, we must lift our eyes beyond that issue and remember that God is able to answer those problems. Indeed, seeing this vision of God's salvation, we're relieved and delivered from the burden of trying to fix everything ourselves. We're told that in ourselves we can do nothing, right? And what this does is it actually helps us understand that all problems are only God-sized problems. So, Understanding that Christ comes to be this answer and indeed all of the events surrounding his life are the beginning of this joy which turns into speech, we are also liberated to 
the, the, uh, simply the joy of simple devotion to Jesus Christ. Yes, there are problems all around the world, and Christ will do something about them. I do not know how, I do not know when, but I know that if I become trapped on those issues, and if I only let my eyes gaze upon the problems, I will never give God the praise that he rightly deserves. I have to lift my eyes up. So seeing Christ's purpose in coming, we are then filled with joy and hope that delivers us from our fears and allows us to praise God again rightly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of Jesus Christ and his glory, which was seen not simply on that day when he was born, but is seen through your word and in remembrance of your promises and in your great works day to day. Lord, we pray that you would give to us as a people, both individually and corporately, this desire to rightly give you praise, to rejoice, to let our hearts be filled with joy at your works, and for that joy to explode not only into praise, but also into speech and witnessing and evangelism and acts of mercy and service to those around us. Lord, we pray that you would give us a great vision for your ability, not only to send your son to, to be an atonement for sin, but also through your spirit and through your people to continue to reach the nations of the earth. We thank you, Lord, for your great salvation, which is much more than just a, a gospel of personal forgiveness, but includes and is unto worldwide redemption. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen.